Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Uh, very happy you have invited me into your home again this week to answer some questions about, well, Scientology and other things. And uh, I just wanted to say that I hope you guys have been keeping up over the last month or so with the content I've been putting out about uh, recent events, current events uh, in the Church of Scientology, the little bubble world uh, that I used to belong to. And there are what I will say are exciting things afoot, uh, simply because it appears that David Miscavige and company are really taking this thing over the cliff through a series of unfortunate events and really, really, really bad decisions. Uh, so anyway, all of that is detailed in the recent interviews I have been doing on the Sensibly Speaking podcast, uh, and you can check those out there, as well as discussions we've had on my Critical Conversations show, which seems to have um, kind of uh, gotten some more viewers lately, and I'm very happy about that, and I want to encourage more of you to check out the live streams that we do on Friday nights. Uh, we got to talk about this a little bit uh, this last Friday, and... Of course, I got to do a little breakdown on Tom Cruise and OT-level auditing, for example, and really spent some time breaking all that down. And it gives me a chance in that format to talk more completely about these things than I'm able to do here in this Q&A show, even though I am now trying to um, give you guys longer, more complete answers to the questions that I'm getting. I am not averse, by the way, to any flash answer questions you guys want to send me. That segment has sort of um, not been part of the show for a while, but I can bring it back just like that. I just need questions from you that are designed to be answered in short format. Uh, those are flash answer questions. So if you want those or you have those and you want answers to them, don't hesitate to send them to me and uh, I will put together a little flash answers section at the end of the show as well. All right. So all of that being said, let's get on with your questions. Nick C., What's the policy on old e-meters? Are particularly old versions deprecated, i.e. not recommended for use any longer? Does the church keep track of who owns them and pester the owners about upgrading to the latest version? Do they have serial numbers? Is there any tamper-proofing on an off chance some wayward SP decided to sabotage Hubbard's wonderful invention to screw up auditing? How does the church feel about e-meters falling into the hands of non-Scientologists? Would the church sell one to a non-Scientologist? All right. Thank you for these questions, Nick. Um, and first off, let me say that e-meters are the exclusive, or at least the Church of Scientology considers, that e-meters, or electropsychometers, that's what that stands for, uh, are the exclusive uh, property and ownership of the Church of Scientology. And I believe they even now have paperwork. I've not seen it, so I can only conjecture here. But um, the Mark, uh, the, the latest e-meter, the Mark 8 Gloratorius or whatever the hell it's called now, um, those e-meters are updated electronically, digitally. And so it used to be that you'd have to send your e-meter in all the way up to the Mark Super 7 Quantum you would be sending your meter back to gold every year or two for what was called a silver certification, which was basically uh, a re an inspection done of the, of the electronic components of the meter, make sure it was still operating according to how they wanted it to, and then they would ship it back to you. And this cost, you know, a couple hundred dollars or something in order to do every couple years. 
Uh, now with the new e-meter, I think you can get all that done digitally because it's a pretty it's a it's a digital meter. It's not doesn't really have a lot of moving parts in it except for that needle on the dial. Um, but the tone arm and the sensitivity and all that is all sort of controlled internally, digitally rather, you know, through computer uh, boards rather than through any kind of um, physical uh, dials, I guess I'm saying, I'm trying to say here. Okay, so um, so that's the maintenance of the meters. As far as ownership goes, though, what I was going to say is, when you, if you're a Scientologist now and you purchase one of these new e-meters, uh, you sign paperwork that if you leave the Church of Scientology or you're no longer a Scientologist, you're going to give them the meter back. And I think they pay you back for it. I think they give you a refund, although don't, uh, don't quote me on that part. I'm not 100% sure of that. But I do know that they are not interested in having those e-meters uh, in the hands of non-Scientologists, and they have taken lengths, they've gone to lengths to ensure that that can't or won't happen. The upgrading, for example, is only done when you log in to a site where you have to give an IAS number or some other proof of identification that you are a Scientologist in good standing. Uh, and they are now trying to control that so that the squirrels and the independent Scientologists cannot have access to or use uh, the Hubbard electropsychometer. They wanted to make it exclusively their own property. And I, so I, now I don't even know when you buy an e-meter... I don't know if it's considered your property or if it's considered on loan or lease to you or something. I'm really not sure how the how the wording of the contract goes, but it's definitely in there. Um, okay, so so that should kind of tell you, you know, how kind of obsessive they are about the the e meter and who's using one. Um, just as a note, the independent Scientology field long ago came up with their own computerized e meter, digital e meter. And it's not even a manufacturer. Then they had software. You could run it on a kind of computer and I guess plug somebody in through a USB connection or something to hold the cans. I mean, I'm really not sure how that was programmed, but I know it exists. And uh, Scientology, of course, is not really super excited about the idea of a, of a computerized digital, fully digital e-meter that you could run on your computer. That would definitely not be something they're down with. Uh, independent Scientologists have also come up with the idea of auditing somebody like over a Zoom call or over a distance. And that, of course, blows the entire framework of an auditing session in terms of the coercive control aspects that I've, that I've talked about. So Scientology is not in any way, shape or form at all interested in having auditing sessions occur uh, any other way than they want them to occur, which is PC in the room, locked up with the auditor who controls the PC's, you know, every movement. Uh, okay, so then, yes, they do have serial numbers. They do keep track of these things. Um, they will not allow, in terms of older style meters, no, you're not using Mark 5s, 6s, 7s anymore uh, at any level of Scientology. When they do, a, when, when, when an upgrade occurs in the books, the meters, the, the, the issues, whatever, it's out with the old, in with the new. Like routinely, that is the attitude in Scientology. You do not ever get away with, or it is uh, heavily frowned upon and even punished if they catch you using old stuff. Now, there was a there was a wiggle room time when the Mark Super 7 first came out, all the way back in the uh, 90s, where it, there was a period of time where a Mark 5 was still being silver-certed, and this is the wooden box e-meter that L. Ron Hubbard developed back in the day. 
And this old, they referred to it as the workhorse meter, and they were even ads in tech films to buy them. And you could still get them certified and use them. Uh, the idea being that the five had a range you could use to clear somebody, but you wouldn't use it on the OT levels. And then you could uh, graduate up to getting a Mark Super 7 quantum e-meter and leave the five behind. Uh, I think that all went by the wayside. And that was a weird thing. That, that even actually, when we saw those ads and heard the fives could still be used, we were all like, wait a minute, what? Because everybody, when the new Mark Super 7 had come out in 1996 as part of the, the original golden age of tech, everybody was all gaga about it. And it had this sort of variable resistance tone arm programmed into it. And this was a really, really, really big deal. And so using the 5, which didn't have that feature, would have been considered some kind of a technical degrade. But then suddenly it was okay for a little while. Anyway, that time came and went. I don't think that that is still the case. And I think if you tried to take a Mark V into an org now, they would just laugh you out of the course room or out of the, uh, the auditing areas. Um, they certainly wouldn't let you use them, I'll say that. Uh, in terms of the tamper-proofing, well, yeah, that's, that's what they're trying to control, right, with the silver certification stuff. And um, as far as, you know, church, how does the church feel about e-meters falling into the hands of non-Scientologists? They hate it. They don't like it at all. I would love, by the way, if anybody out there, I've never really put a call out for this, but if anybody out there has one of the new Mark 8 e-meters and they would like to loan it to me, I would love to see this thing in action. I have never actually played with the recent, the latest version of an e-meter. And of course, all the, all the moving parts and all of the, 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 the way you use the meter hasn't changed at all. It's just the, uh, the electronics that drive the needle to move is what's changed. So it might be interesting, and I would love an opportunity to play around with that thing. So uh, anyway, just putting that out there. If any of y'all have a Mark 8, you want to loan me. All right. That all being said, because uh, it's impossible, obviously, for me to actually purchase one. Uh, if you put one up for sale on eBay, I know Scientology monitors that quite closely, and they will grab it up. Uh, they do not want their e-meters out in the wild, and there's already way too many of them out there. So, uh, so, but they're really trying to control this new one, this Mark 8. So I call it new, even though it's been out for, you know, a lot, a lot of years now. But uh, anyway, you guys get the idea. So there you go, Nick. Steve Wood. At what point, if ever, did Hubbard come to the stunning realization that none of Scientology worked and that it was all a con? Do you think that happened? Thank you for this question, Steve. And I'm going to go deep here. No, I don't think Hubbard ever came to any stunning realization that Scientology doesn't work. And the reason why I believe that is because I think, as L. Ron Hubbard's own son famously said, Scientology does work exactly as it's intended to work. It just doesn't work the way L. Ron Hubbard says it works. And this is a really, really important piece of information to understand the depth of and the depravity of the nature of what the con actually is. Because I've said for years and years and years, very, very correctly, that Scientology is a money-making scam. It is there to make money, no question about it. But there is a deeper purpose. And this is something John Atak and I have discussed even recently in our last podcast. We talked when this came up. And this has to do with um, a lot of, you know, theorizing, a lot of sort of subjective, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe kind of connecting dots, looking at things, 
you start looking at L. Ron Hubbard's history in the occult. You look at L. Ron Hubbard's history with hypnotism. You look at his uh, affirmations, the things that were driving him personally mad and driving and driving his behavior, driving his what motivated him. And the things that motivated L. Ron Hubbard are very, very, very far from the things that motivate you and me. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was driven by an intense need to be liked, admired, loved, worshipped. And if people weren't giving him that as what he considered his due, then he became quite vicious and vindictive. And certainly, if you had pledged any degree of loyalty or affinity or, or you know, sort of positivity in his direction, he expected that to continue forever. And it's it appears putting all these kind of connecting all these dots together. And this is something John's talked about. Hugh Urban has um, written a paper called the um, about the occult origins of, of Dianetics and Scientology. I believe he's the one who wrote that. He's an academic. He's never a Scientologist. Um, but these occult origins and this and this whole, you know, relationship that I've uh, that, that we've talked about in earlier podcasts with Madame Blavatsky and 19th century, you know, spiritualism and the occult and Aleister Crowley and his whole system of magic with a K and the sex and blood magic rituals that Hubbard actually really, truly did engage in with Jack Parsons in the 1940s. All of that gives us a picture prior to Dianetics and Scientology even coming around that Elwin Hubbard was a very desperate, unhappy man. And he was racked with indecision and jealousies and problems and self-loathing and all kinds of issues. And it was a weird mix with him because he wanted to dominate and control the minds and, and will of other people. He thought that that would be the way that he could, be, that he could accomplish some degree of happiness or security uh, for his life, right? And that was what all the money was about. Hubbard was a Hubbard. Uh, Hubbard just how do I put it? He, he spent money as quickly as he got it. He was, he was really, really, really bad at saving money or, or economizing or anything like that. So once the money started rolling in big, right, he was just kind of tearing through it. But that was all just a means to an end is kind of where I was trying to go. There is the end goal of Scientology. As far as we can tell is that L Ron Hubbard's name is never, ever, ever forgotten. That that is how he believed he would achieve a kind of immortality. And this is old school thinking. This is, this is like, you know, if you watch um, the, the, the most modern parallel I can give you, and interesting that it comes from this source, is Neil Gaiman, who wrote a book called American Gods. And in that book, he talks about these old Norse gods and how they are dying out or there's this long protracted sort of existence they have, but it is a not a good existence because people have forgotten about them and their power and their very life comes from the fact that people remember them, say their name, worship them, adore them, that kind of thing. It appears L. Ron Hubbard had the same kind of thinking that he was like an American god. He was like somebody who could achieve immortality through this means of people loving, worshiping, adoring him, and always saying his name. And here I am, 
saying his name 10 years after I've left Scientology. You see, like we, we keep talking about him and this is his goal. This is what he wanted. He's immortal to the degree that you and I and everybody else in this world worries, frets, and tries to figure him out. Now, he wanted love and adoration and, and not necessarily worship as such. He never really demanded anything that you would think of as worship. But his name on our lips, you know, his concepts and ideas and thoughts being our concepts and ideas and thoughts, his route, his, his work being uh, praised and admired forever. And let's not forget those vaults you know, enshrining his work forever. How many people, how many pieces of work do you know, artwork, literature, science, how many of those works have, have people spent millions upon millions of dollars researching and engaging in the highest level of archival technology that can be developed on earth. The Church of Scientology has invested millions and millions of dollars in this project to preserve L. Ron Hubbard's words and uh, writings forever in a format that is so hard to destroy <laughs> that it's kind of, you know, that, that it will last forever. Why would you do that? What would impel, what would compel somebody to demand that their works be kept forever in such a state? And it's somebody who has a desire to never die. And L. Ron Hubbard never will die if those directions are followed and if his works, you know, continue to be propagated the way they are. Why do you think he's translated so profusely all over the world? Why is his name published in more countries under more languages than any other author ever? He's got the Guinness Book of World Records for that because of this goal. And Scientology, the Church of Scientology as an entity, is fulfilling this goal. Now, I don't think that David Miscavige cares one iota about any of this, but it doesn't really matter. The entire framework of Scientology, the entire structure of it is designed to do what I'm telling you right now, to do this. So Miscavige would himself have to tear down all the works, destroy all the vaults, get rid of everything, change everything, salt the earth in order to Foil, you know, foil Hubbard's plans, right, in order to counter them. And he's not about to do that because David Miscavige's only livelihood and his cash cow is L. Ron Hubbard and L. Ron Hubbard's works, which is one of the reasons why it is so amazing to me to watch him undo it all anyway, because that's kind of what he's doing these days. Through, through sheer incompetence, stupidity, self-righteousness. I don't know. I really don't. I don't know what's motivating David Miscavige, but I can look at the actions he's taken, the orders he's given, and the direction Scientology has gone in the last 10 years since I left, and I see it going right over a cliff. And, of course, I'm cheering that on. 
because that is the thing that will counter or foil L. Ron Hubbard's ultimate plans and goals, right? See, to me, 50 years from now, after I'm long gone and, and so many of the rest of us are, I am really and truly hoping that L. Ron Hubbard's name just gets forgotten, like so many others in the past. So many other cult leaders, so many other religious fanatics, so many people in history whose names no longer are on our lips or even in our history books, whose works have gone to dust, right? That's what I want for L. Ron Hubbard and his work, right? Because it's, it's, it has negative value. It, it, it's, it's worse than useless. It's destructive. And there is no way that you can go about doing L. Ron Hubbard's methods and techniques without hurting somebody. It's that, it's that built into it, right? But the whole thing was not about helping people. It was about preserving L. Ron Hubbard's name. And to that degree, so far, L. Ron Hubbard has not been a failure. He, is, he has only been a success. And so uh, that's why I say now, coming circling all the way back around, Steve, that's why I say to you now that no, L. Ron Hubbard never did come to a stunning realization that it was all for naught, right? Now, perhaps, and it's been posited, of course, right, that you know, when you read um, the account via Marty through Sarge Fouth and Sarge Fouth's um, I think I'm remembering that name right. The guy who was hanging around with L. Ron Hubbard until the very end of his life, along with the brokers up in San Luis Obispo, he had three people with him full time. And that was Pat and any broker. And then this Steve Sarge Fouth guy. And he then and Steve was kind of the caretaker and, and estates guy there. And he was very, very close with L. Ron Hubbard in his final years. And there's that whole story about the uh, L. Ron Hubbard requesting to build an e-meter that would kill him because he could never really overcome those last few body thetans or something. And he was delusionally seeing them around, you know, on fence posts and various places around the ranch up in, up in uh, Creston, California, which is, where he was, uh, which is where he died. So it very well could be that trying to fight his own demons, L. Ron Hubbard considered himself a failure, and it could be implied from the stories we've heard that that is how he ended his life as a dismal failure, and he knew it. But that's very, very conjectural, right? As, as conjectural as all the other stuff I'm kind of telling you. It's, it's there. It's possible that that's how he died, right, and knowing he was a failure. But given the worldwide growth, success, and adoration uh, of Scientology that Hubbard was getting, at the end of his life, all the way to the very end, he had people working dedicatedly 24-7, hardcore. We're going to get Hubbard back. We're going to get him away from his exile. We're going to bring him back, and, and the law is going to love him, and everybody's going to love him, and he's going to be great. That was the effort that was being made in the mid-1980s by a lot of Scientologists, upper-level Sea Org members, right, trying desperately to, to bring Hubbard back into, you know, uh, the good graces of the, of the world and the law and everything. Uh, point being that he was loved, adored, admired, etc., by a, by a bunch of people. And so, you know, what did, what did he make of all of that? I think he made, you know, that, that, that was a success on his part. And having said all that, uh, there you go. Michael Yoder in a lecture, LRH talked about three scales, the tone scale, the reality scale, and the effect scale. 
I know you've covered the tone scale, but can you briefly explain the reality and effect scales? Also, LRH said that thetans were essentially a math symbol and that they are below the scales, minus zero scales, and that they are deader than dead, quote unquote. If a thetan is me, then how can it be deader than dead and below the scales? Of course, it's the ravings of a madman, but I would love to hear your thoughts and maybe explanations if that's even humanly possible. All right, Michael, you made me dive into my Scientology literature for this one. So I'm going to pull up, I've actually pulled up on my screen here, uh, all of these scales. And I thought I might walk you through some concepts with this. L. Ron Hubbard was big on scales. He came up with lots of them, probably about 100 or so are in this book, Scientology Zero to Eight which is where I'm drawing this from. And they kind of compiled all of these scales and, and levels and all this stuff and put it in this book. So when we look at the tone scale, let's go ahead and start with that, actually, because this is a way I can ex start explaining what these negative bands on these scales are. The scales go below zero in many, many cases. They don't end at zero. When it comes to a tone scale or an emotional tone scale, here we're talking about people's emotions, how they express motion, feelings, degrees of affinity, closeness or likingness or uh, desire to be around other people, that kind of thing. These are all emotions, emotional attitudes. And Hubbard said that it can go down to zero, which is when the body dies. But as we all know, in Scientology, you are not a body. You are a thetan. And a thetan operates a body. Well, the body is clearly alive until it's not and when it dies. And the body can't express or even exhibit or um, demonstrate or experience as a body, as a living entity, right? Like whether we're talking about a human body, dog body, whale body, you know, whatever kind of body we're talking about, the range of emotional sensation that those bodies can experience stops at death because it's dead, right? Boom, gone, nothing else. It's, it's not experiencing anything anymore. But a thetan can go lower, can be worse than dead, can have a state of existence that is worse than being dead. And the best analogy that I can draw for everybody that I think you guys will immediately understand is what it's like to be in hell. You're dead when you're in hell, remember? Yet you're there. Your soul is sent to hell. You, the, 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 the living entity, the life force that is you, is sent to this other place. And it's not a physical place. You're not sent down underground. You're sent to some other state of existence. Just like in heaven, you are in a different state of existence. You are in a higher, wonderful, amazing place. But is it really a physical place or is it a state of being? I've always thought of it as a state of being because it's a place your soul goes to. What the hell is that and how does that work, right? Clearly, that's not a physical thing and a physical existence the same way we think about here where you got stuff. You know, you got a body, you can feel it. It's made up of atoms, molecules, and stuff like that. Your soul isn't. Heaven isn't. Hell isn't. And yet it's a state of existence that is in hell worse than being alive. So in Scientology, of course, it's not considered that you're going to hell. 
I was just offering that as an analogy of what could be a spiritual existence that would be worse than death. Here, Hubbard describes that uh, the levels, the negative tone levels, include failure, right? Below death is failure. You failed, you know, you're, you're dead. Pity, shame. Now, shame is, is minus 0.2 on this scale. And it also is described as being other bodies, if you are at the tone level of shame, you are being other bodies. So you're not just being, you're, you're not being your own body anymore, but you're existing here and you're trying to or clinging to or somehow manifesting an existence through others. And this is called shame. Then there's accountable and then there is blame which is punishing other bodies. You ever hear about a haunting, right? What is a ghost doing? What's a ghost, right? It's a thetan. Punishing other bodies, blaming them, right? I can't get a body. I hate everything. I'm going to blame these things. I'm going to haunt them. Could be, right? Regret, uh, controlling bodies, protecting bodies. I'm just going down the scale now. Owning bodies is minus three. Approval from bodies is minus 3.5, where maybe the person is so bad off, the Thetan is so bad off that at approval from bodies, they're trying to go be something like a light post or something, hoping people admire them, right? Maybe they go and go off and be a billboard or something, have people stare at them all day. A Thetan could do that easily. Right? A thetan doesn't have to be a, a biological organism. A thetan is a spiritual entity. It can occupy or inhabit anything it wants to. And if it is down in the place where it's not up to having a living body and up to operating it competently, it could be in these negative states of awareness and, and, and knowledge where it believes that it has to get approval from bodies. Right below there is needing bodies at minus four, worshiping bodies at minus five, um, sacrifice, right? Maybe the Thetan now considers that he's just sacrificing himself for the greater good or something. I mean, there's all kinds of goofy stuff going on here with this. Um, pulling back up here. Here we go. All the way down to hiding, being objects is a tone level. It's minus 10, being objects. If you were being this table, well, you're certainly not having a body. Uh, being nothing, which is a parallel with unconsciousness. Here is where you will find your body thetans. All those body thetans attached to you, right? They're not being a body. They are lower than death. They're in a state of existence where they're not even really aware of their own existence. I mean, that's pretty bad. And, of course, you get can't hide at minus 30 and total failure, the bottom of the scale, total failure. And one imagines with something like this at minus 40 that we are talking about a level of failure that, that would be impossible almost for you and I in our bodies in this kind of, in this mode of existence we would we have a very hard time contemplating just how total this feeling of failure would be. 
This is not something you pick yourself back up from. Minus 40 is as, is as dead as you can get as a Thetan. You're a total failure. So, uh, so that's the emotional negative bands on that tone scale. And I wanted to go through that to kind of throw some concepts at you there about how the negative bands in Scientology work is the Thetan is so bad off, he doesn't even know how bad off he is. Um, and there's this other idea, okay, and I'm trying to make sense out of this stuff, and it is all a bit crazy, and you're not wrong, Michael, that we are talking about the ravings of a madman in many ways here, but there is this kind of certain logic to it. Um, because theoretically, you could, um, as a Thetan, be in one of these negative bands and actually be in a body. But the body is only going to be able to manifest grief, fear, terror, anger. These are the things that bodies manifest that we can see, feel, hear, experience. But a body cannot manifest total failure or being objects. That's not what a body does. It's what a Thetan does. So the Thetan could be occupying the body and, ex and look to be fearful or terror-stricken or angry or apathetic. But the Thetan is actually so bad off that he's in the negative bands in terms of his own awareness. And so then at that point, your interactions with that person are... Now you're dealing with the social me mechanics and mechanisms of the body because a body is not just nothing. A body does have a certain degree. It's got a brain. It's got action patterns. It's got intelligence of its own kind in a limited way. You know, just like dogs, cats, animals do, you know, those are, those are creatures that don't always have thetans connected with them. So if you're so bad off as a thetan that you're, not, you're barely running things with the body, the body could still look and act as though it's alive and responding to things and stuff like this. And this is how a lot of Scientologists, as weird as this sounds, and I hope I'm making sense, this is how a lot of Scientologists think about what are called degraded beings, DBs, right? This is how Scientologists think about homeless people. This is how Scientologists think about psychiatric victims. This is how Scientologists think about people who get too uh, down the scale on drugs, Go, you know, get get into uh, the the fantasy world of drugs and 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 uh, you know the degradation, the crystal meth, you know, Breaking Bad, that level of stuff, right? Uh, Scientologists think about those people as like you know really bad off spiritually, so bad off they're not even hardly running things. Okay, so that's your negative scales. So when we go to the reality scale, Hubbard wrote in 1959. Um, well, let me just read a couple things here, right? An individual's fear of creating bad effects, an individual's fear of receiving them, all of these things compound into communication, into reality, and into his general attitude toward the world, which we call affinity. Uh, the affinity scale is graduated in emotions, but the reality scale is graduated in manifestations, High emotional levels would be manifested as a person who would permit experience. An individual can experience a, a, what is called a terminal, a person. He can experience being something. He can merely confront it, usually with some trepidation. You can go easily from confront to experience. Um, 
Okay. I don't know if I want to read this to you, uh, but going down the line to uh, on the effect scale, what I was just reading to you was the manifestation of high emotional levels. But if you come down the line to 2.0, it is all dub in, Hubbard writes. Individual looks at a wall, sees a castle. Okay, he's dubbing in. He's, he's imagining something that's not there. He looks at an engram, sees a rhinoceros. He looks at a small bird flying through a picture, and he at once wonders desperately about a ham sandwich. Um, okay, so that is your reality scale. In other words, the idea here pretty clearly is that a person at a certain level on the reality scale, on the tone scale, will start not experiencing actual reality. They will be experiencing reality through the filter of what their mind, their, their reactive mind, and their body thetans and all that stuff is putting there for them. And they're not even really seeing or experiencing or manifesting actual reality. And then when we come to the, um, okay, that was the reality scale. And then we go to the effect scale. Um, okay, and this is, here's some Scientology theory for you. Remember how we've always gone on about PTSDness and SPs, now it's always your fault. And how everything uh, having to do with responsibility in Scientology comes back to, circles back to you. You are ultimately responsible for everything that happens to you. Well, let me give you a little bit more on that line. Hubbard writes, everything or anything to be injured must first give its consent. So the effect scale is a measurement of how many consents an individual has given to being injured. This is how often and how many times he's consented to certain things being injurious. It goes from just one little old thing being injurious so as to make a game on downscale to everything and anything being injurious. So at the top of the effect scale, the individual can give or receive any effect. No big deal. It doesn't matter to him, right? You throw him into a sun, eh, you know? Blow up the universe, meh, whatever, right? He can give or receive any effect. Going down a little bit, the individual could give or receive quite a few effects. He could cause a lot of things. A lot of things could be caused to him. This is about the plane in which life operates. Very successful life operates in selective giving and receiving effects. And we go down further to the bottom. He can receive no effects, but he still feels he must give a total effect. It's total identification. Everything is injurious everywhere. The ultimate is that the individual dare not confront things because if he confronted them, he would be receiving an effect from them just perceiving them. He knows they are totally harmful, so he mustn't see them. All right. So that is your effect scale. What effects can a person tolerate? What effects can he tolerate giving? What effects can he tolerate receiving? And Hubbard, of course, is positing that as you go up and up and up and up and up the line, you can give or receive anything. And this is where we get this, these weird, bizarre, even like sort of perverted quotes, like in Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, when Hubbard talks about how you could theoretically kiss an eight-year-old girl passionately and it shouldn't really matter shouldn't have any effect on her because 
why would it matter if you if a grown man passionately kissed an eight-year-old girl unless she had engrams memories from past lives or past traumas indicating that such a thing would be bad for her right so theoretically hubbard is sort of throwing out there that this eight-year-old girl should be able to receive the be the effect of anything and it shouldn't really harm her or or traumatize her right and of course that's ludicrous. That is insane. Nothing I said just makes any sense at all. But Hubbard wrote that, and he wrote it in Dianetics back in 1950, and people stuck with him. <laughs> I mean, there's just no accounting for taste sometimes, right? Anyway, uh, that all being said, um, Michael, I think that's that. those are some explanations I can give you, and I hope that all of that made some kind of twisted sense because really it only makes sense in the minds of Scientologists. Cynthia Miller, you mentioned that people who are on OT levels 7 and 8 spend much of their day auditing. How does that work when Tom Cruise and other Scientology actors are on set? For all his faults, I've always had the idea that Tom Cruise is pretty hardworking. Does he stop production in order to do his OT level work? Or is he given an out so that he doesn't have to work on that stuff while he's on set? Just curious. All right. Uh, thanks, Cynthia. Look, all I can do is guess here, okay? I don't know Tom Cruise's schedule on set at all. But, um, but here's the deal with this, right? Here's what I can tell you. And I, maybe I'll just stick with this rather than conjecturing about Tom Cruise's on-set behavior. OT levels are the single most important thing that Scientology has to deliver to a Scientologist. There isn't anything going on in Scientology that is ultimately more important than the OT levels. So to an individual Scientologist, whether it's Tom Cruise, John Jones, or Sally Sue, when you're doing the OT levels, you are engaged in an activity that is more important than anything you will ever do. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. Right? All the way back down four quadrillion years, <laughs> this is what you are doing that is going to salvage you as an immortal spiritual being you are already immortal but you don't even realize it. you don't even know it you can't manifest it or, or recognize it or experience it and the ot levels are your ticket to freedom so you can imagine that if that's the attitude a person has and it is that is what i'm describing is absolutely 100 percent across the boards this is what scientologists think there isn't anything else going on in your life that's more important than you getting in session on those levels now, obviously, people still have to work, deal with their family, deal with their jobs, deal with their life circumstances and responsibilities and obligations. So they are allowed on the level of OT7, because it takes years to do it, they're allowed to go home and do it. Uh, that's not true of the other OT levels. OTs 1, 2, and 3 are done on Sea Org bases uh, or uh, base-adjacent properties, right? You just kind of pound your way through them because they don't take that long. OT4 and OT5 are delivered to you by an auditor. Uh, when you're doing OT1, 2, and 3, which is solo auditing, you arrange your life beforehand. And when you go start on that process, you agree beforehand daily. You are going in every day through one to OT1, OT2, OT3. You are not stopping. They sell it all as one package. And you would have to take the extraordinary action of blowing, of going AWOL, of taking off without authorization if you wanted to get out of that little cycle, right? Once you start on OT1, 
you're powering through until you get through OT3. And that usually really only takes a month or two. It's not a very long process. OT4 is maybe a week of auditing. OT5 is about three or four weeks of auditing, right? So you arrange your life, you get out there. And on OT4, you don't necessarily take breaks because it's a pretty quick thing. But OT5, you could. There's a number of things, number of rundowns that you do. It's not all just one big mushed action. OT5 actually consists of, I don't know, 15 or 20 different rundowns. And so you could get through maybe five of them, take a break, go back home, deal with stuff, come back, maybe run out of money, right? You only paid for 25 hours of auditing. You get as far as you can. They take you to what they call a flat point, and then you go back home, right? That's how auditing is delivered through OT5. OT level six is a class. It's a course that you take, and you have to go to Flag in Clearwater to do it. And it takes like about a month or two full time to get through it. It's a big, chunky course. Uh, the final part of that course is doing practice auditing, your first initial auditing of the OT7 materials. And you do that under supervision at FLAG. It's the only place in the world you can do that. Then you get sent home to actually do your level OT7. Okay, And that is, that's pretty much where we address stuff like this, where it's like, oh, well, now you have to live your life around your OT auditing. So you have to go in session every day. But how you do that, when you do that, is up to you. You have to do at least one session, but you're encouraged to do many more, even five or six or seven sessions a day if you have the time to do it. And on that note, it should be noted that an OT session at OT level seven could take five minutes, right? It's a, it's a boom, boom thing, right? It can go, it can go very quickly. It doesn't have to, and sometimes OT sessions can go long, but generally speaking, they're very short. You go in, you spot the BT, you do the deal with it, and you send it on its way, and you're done, right? Boom, boom. So maybe you do that session first thing in the morning, or you do that session over lunch, or you go home after work and you go in session, pound out a session or two, get rid of a BT or two. Then you watch TV or do whatever else you want to do for your, for your day, right? That's the general course of how that works. So if you're on set on a movie like Tom Cruise and you need to go in session every day because you're auditing on OT7, you know that and you set up your schedule accordingly. And there is not one actor on any set anywhere in any production who doesn't have a bit of downtime, right? So it would be very, very, very easy for Tom Cruise to arrange his life in such a way that he could do these very short burst OT sessions while he's also filming Mission Impossible 29 or something, right? Uh, so that's kind of how that works. OT level eight, by the way, is also, is not solo. Um, well, sorry, it is solo, but you have to go to the ship to do it. You don't go home and do OT8. OT8 is only and exclusively delivered on the free winds. So, um, so you have to arrange your life to go down there, spend time on the ship, and get through the level and then go home. And, um, and that's how that's done. So really, it, so your question, Cynthia, really only applies to OT level 7. And, um, and I, think I've, I think I've answered that. So anyway, I uh, hope that illuminates. And there you go. All right, guys, so we have uh, answered enough questions, I think, to fill out enough time here that I think we'll call it quits on this show this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gabber on about this stuff. It was all pretty Scientology-related this week, 
And I hope that this, these answers I gave you were informative, educational, and perhaps possibly mildly entertaining. All right, that all being said, I look forward to seeing you guys next week. If you have not subscribed, please hit that subscribe button. And if you are not getting notifications of new content as it comes up, go ahead and check, I think, that little bell button so you get notifications when I post videos. And of course, I will again encourage you all to check out our Friday shows and uh, the podcast that I post every Saturday. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.